The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, all right. Thanks, Rachel. How are we doing? I like that feedback. That's good. That's good. Uh, it, it is good to be with y'all tonight. Excited to open up God's Word and to dig in with you guys. Uh, my name is Walker. I'm on staff here at Citizens, if we haven't met. Uh, if you're new, we're really, really glad that you're here, that you've chosen to make time to be here on a Sunday to worship uh, and to join us. If you've been tracking with us so far, you're probably aware that we're working through the book of James. Uh, it's on the back screen, right? The big cross, dead faith. It's the book of James. Uh, it's been great. Uh, we, we come tonight to James 4, 1 through 10, and it kind of deals with the outworking of some of the stuff that Tim talked about last week. We heard Tim last week talk about the difference in godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, and we saw how godly wisdom is better and so now James is going to push the envelope a little bit, and he's going to address how these two systems not only war over our minds, but they actually war over our hearts, too. And in all of this, we're going to see James's rousing call to repentance. But before we do that, let's pray. God, we do praise you for who you are, that you're God, that you're sovereign. Yet, uh, as we just sang, God, you are mindful of men. What a glorious reality that is, that you simultaneously uphold the earth and yet know us and love us and yearn for us to be in your presence and to know you. God, we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture. We pray, God, that my words would fall to the ground and not be remembered, but God, may your word remain and may it change us. Spirit, we pray that you would do what only you could do in this place, that you would change our hearts. So God, speak to us because we're listening. We're eager to hear from you. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the most popular class in the history of Yale University, right, like Yale, prestigious Yale, is a, is, was only taught on campus one time. In the spring of 2018, in the largest lecture hall space on campus, 1,200 people. 
after that spring, these lectures and the class material were actually put online for the mass public to see the content. And to date, 3.3 million people have signed up for the class. The class on campus was called Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life. Online, you'll find it as the science of well-being. If you find it online, you'll see a course description that says, in this course, you will engage in a series of, of challenges designed to increase your own happiness and build more productive habits. As preparation for these tasks, Professor Laurie Santos reveals misconceptions about happiness, annoying features of the mind that lead us to think the way that we do, and the research that can help us change. You will ultimately be prepared to successfully incorporate a specific wellness activity into your life. So what do you think has led to this mass appeal of this class? Isn't there kind of this innate pull in us towards the ideas of happiness and the good life? Don't you, don't you feel that? For whatever reason, we've equated the success of our lives to our own happiness, to our self-fulfillment. We want our lives to have meaning. We want our lives to have value. And if those things don't happen, then are we really living? Are, are, are our lives really good? Our culture is hungry for happiness for purpose, and maybe most of all for meaning. We're hungry for the good life. That's what these folks at Yale had discovered. That's what they've come to know, is that we are hungry for the good life. This idea of the good life has actually become so ingrained in our culture that Merriam-Webster has actually picked it up and defined it. That's how you know it's a cultural thing when Merriam-Webster picks it up. And they define the good life in two ways. One, the kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have, or two, a happy and enjoyable life. If we were to honestly assess ourselves, that's what we're after too. We want that. We want one or both of those things. We want the life that money can buy, and we also really want to be happy. We Christians are not immune to this problem either. If you were to do a quick scan of the best-selling Christian books on Amazon right now, you'd stumble across some pretty interesting titles, two that I found this week. One, Living Fully, Dare to Step into Your, your Most Vibrant Life. And two, Undistracted, Capture Your Purpose, Rediscover Your Joy. Sorry if you've read those two books. Um, we too, as Christians, want the good life. We want to reach our potential. We want a vibrant life. And maybe God is the way to make that happen. Here's the thing. It's not bad for our lives to have meaning. In fact, that's actually a really biblical thing. It's a biblical thing for your life to have meaning. But what our passage gets at tonight is that your vision of the good life matters. It's not a question of whether you have a vision for the good life. It's a question of what that vision is, and it matters. We'll see in James 4 that dead faith looks like your pursuit of the self-fulfilled good life but living faith submits to God. Living faith submits to God. We'll see that the good life is actually found in humble submission to God. In making this case, James will answer three questions. He'll answer the question, where do we seek the good life? He'll answer, why are we wrong in our seeking? And he'll answer, how do we receive this good life? So if you would, you can look with me again at verse 1. 
It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is this not that your passions are at war within you? So James is, he's in yell at mode right here. He's going after these folks. It's kind of funny when you read this in the original language, there's no verbs. So it's like fights, quarrels. Are you serious? Like what's happening? What's going on? It's funny. Anyways, nerd, that's, that was free. Uh, so James is connecting what's going on in the, the inside of people to what happens on the outside. He's saying that warring passions on the inside eventually give birth to warring on the outside. He's showing us that our passions, the things that we want, the things that we desire, are directly connected to the outward posture of our lives. The word for passions in this original language is the word hedone, which our word hedonism comes, comes from which means the pursuit of pleasure or self-indulgence. So it paints a pretty vivid picture. In essence, James is saying that outwardly, these people claim the label Christian, but inwardly, they're really self-indulgent and they pursue pleasure at all costs. And actually, outwardly, they don't look much like the Christian label that they claim. They claim that label with none of the loyalty. Their desires have become their needs. So when they don't get what they want, it's game on. I've got to get mine, and I'm coming for anything or anybody that stands in my way. James illustrates this point, this point in verses 2 through 3. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James says these warring passions lead to murder, covetousness, lust, and asking wrongly. While it may be a stretch to think that people were actually murdering one another over their warring desires and warring pleasures inside of them, James is showing us that, hey, these are sins too. And actually neglected, these sins give birth to bigger and badder sins. Essentially what he's saying is like, you people are killing each other, right? When we say that, like, he's killing me. He's, he's putting that in their court. He's saying, you, you are killing each other. Their vision of the good life has driven them to war with one another and has driven them to treat God like their puppet. God is helpful in them getting what they want. God has become their vending machine. He's become their genie. When they come to God in prayer, they ask for their own gain. They ask wrongly. They don't really want God for God. They want God for themselves. They want the gifts and not the giver. Ultimately, their passions are crowding out their love for God. All of this comes to a head in verse four, where James's rebuke is the loudest and the most forceful. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He throws, he throws down the gauntlet. If anything rivals your love for God, you are guilty of spiritual adultery. We're called to be singularly devoted to God. 
You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. He has called you to be devoted to him above all else. So there's actually great danger in trying to get the good life apart from God or trying to use God to get what you want. That's spiritual adultery. You cannot claim the label Christian with none of the loyalty. The truth of the matter is that we're really not that different than these people that James is writing to. Our selfish pursuit of the good life is actually our spiritual adultery. We're gripped by our own visions of what the good life could be. We have these ideas about what might make us happy or where value or worth or meaning is found. And our culture loves this. Like our culture buys into this hook, line, and sinker. Every commercial or every ad on, on social media reinforces this idea that we're incomplete without something or somebody or some renown or some feeling. So we, we, we let our passions control ourselves. These passions actually kick Jesus off the throne of our hearts and they crowd out our love for him. For some of us, our passions are, are, are pretty real. They're, they're gripping, they're visceral. They're like, I'm, I'm lonely and I want to be affirmed. And I look for anything that will ease my loneliness. So I end up perusing the internet late at night, hoping that those hollow images will somehow fulfill me. Or maybe it's, I want to feel good about myself. So I say that thing that I shouldn't to that person that I shouldn't, and I justify my gossip to stroke my own ego. Or maybe it's, gosh, I just want, I, I want to relax, but my anxiety won't let me. So I drink the extra drink to numb those anxious feelings to where I can finally relax. For others, maybe our, our passion is a little more accepted and maybe it's more in line with the American dream. It's, I want the toys, I want the career, I want the renown, I want the fame. So I neglect my family, my spouse, my friends, my kids, my responsibilities to stack up these accomplishments and to stack up my work. Or maybe it's, I want the Instagrammable life, or I want like the consummate millennial life. So I date the person that I shouldn't to look cool to those people. Here's a big one. I want my comfort so I don't engage with the needs around me. So that I can have enough to ensure that my comfort is not infringed upon. Maybe a better question, a better diagnostic question for us is, what is the thing that you want that you're willing to sin to get? What's the thing that you want that you're willing to sin to get? Isn't that the core of idolatry? Loving something more than loving God? For us, it's the love of ourselves. This is the crux of the matter. This passage is saying that we love ourselves too much. Your life is about you. It's about your pleasure and your comfort and your fame and your reputation and your success. Your love for yourself rivals your love for God, and your love for yourself actually shows that you may not love God the way that you think you do or claim you do or are supposed to. And here's the thing. The Bible has no category for a self-seeking Christian. Seeking our own pleasure is actually a self-defeating exercise. There's this scene in the book of Acts, in Acts 8, where the apostles 
heal in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And there's this pagan sorcerer who watches them. His name's Simon. Simon's like, man, I want that. I want that power. I want to be able to do what they're doing. So he asked him, he said, please give me this power. He is swiftly rebuked by the apostles. He wanted the gifts, but not the giver. He was interested in God for the things that God could give him. He wasn't interested in God. He wanted the fame. He wanted the renown. He wanted to be the one doing the healing. Like, could you, could you imagine you're spending time with somebody that you really love? Maybe it's a spouse or a friend or one of your children. And instead of looking at them, you stare at their hands the whole time. You don't ever look at them in the face. You look at their hands the whole time that you're spending time with them. Because you're only interested in what they can give you. How they can benefit you. How they can make you look good. Like you would never do that. That's crazy. Right? Like could you imagine spending time with a friend and never looking them in the face and just looking at their hands because it's like, hey, I want you to make me feel good. I want, I want you to give me something. Like you would never do that. But we do that with God. We do that with God. We come to him to serve our own needs, to serve our own vision, to serve our own passions, because those things are more important to us than God himself. And this is spiritual adultery. James has caught us in the crosshairs of this rebuke. We're called to be singularly devoted to God. The Christian life is not just the label Christian with no loyalty. If there's anything crowding out your love for Jesus, get rid of it. Our love of ourselves is at best indifference to God, but at worst, it's openly hostile towards him. We're, we're, we're not to flirt with any other passions, any other visions of the good life, because he wants all of us. And that's what James reminds us of next. Look with me again at verse 5. It says, Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So James has diagnosed the problem and he stacked up a pretty good case against us. Our heart's loyalty is split. We can't serve both our passions and serve God. We're either friends with the world or we're friends with God. There's really no in between. You can't have both. So that's what's wrong. But why is it wrong? Verses five and six are put here for a reason. It would have made a lot of sense to go from the diagnostic of the problem in verses one through four immediately to the practical advice of verses seven through 10. But verses five and six are here for a reason. James points the finger and then he points up. He addresses the problem and then he says, do you remember your God? Do you remember the God that you serve? It's as if he's saying, do you realize how wonderful and great and beautiful he is? Maybe you sin because you view God wrongly. James indicts us in the same charges. You chase your vision of the good life because you view God wrongly. James calls us to repent. He calls us to first acknowledge our sin. And then he calls us to remember who God is. Our God's a jealous God. He wants all of us. He's not content with just part or a piece. He wants all of us. He wants all of your heart, not just part of it. He wants all of your life, not just part of it. In that, he wants us to view him rightly. He is God, and he has no rivals. 
These folks to whom James is writing have ignored what the scriptures say. God is God and should be honored as such. God is God and should be loved as such. God is God and should be treated as such. Yet these people are presuming on the kindness of God. God has no business playing second fiddle to anybody or anything else. So when it says that God yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, it's saying that as a believer, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. He lives in the hearts of believers. He's the one who reminds us of the gospel. He's the one who leads us in repentance. He's the one who is reminding us of how to view God rightly. And it's purposeful that God has sent his spirit. The spirit wins back our loyalty to God. And God yearns jealously for that to happen. The Spirit helps us view God rightly. I have a friend who recently got married to a woman he met at a wedding. They were both in the wedding party, and uh, it was not that long into the interactions from the bride's side and the groom's side where he was convinced, say, this is the woman I'm going to marry. So he starts telling some of the groomsmen about it, and uh, as the night goes on, he's trying to talk to this woman. And he's, the way he tells the story, he's at the top of his game. He's talking, but she's not really reciprocating. Finally, towards the end of the night, he resolves, hey, this is my shot. Like, I got to make something happen. So he jokes that he's going to fly to Chattanooga to take her on a date. He lived in Oklahoma City. She didn't believe him. So he takes off his watch and he puts it on her wrist. And she looks up at him. She's, what are you doing? He responds, I will get that back from you when I see you next weekend in Chattanooga when we go on a date. Sure enough, he flies to Chattanooga and gets his watch back. And 10 months later, he has a fiance. You see, the Holy Spirit, he's like the watch. Just like the watch was the promise that my friend would go see her and take her on a date. The Holy Spirit is the seal of God that he's given to ensure you of your salvation. The watch is the proof that he's going to buy the plane ticket. The watch is the proof that he's going to make the travel arrangements. The watch is the proof that he's actually going to visit her in Chattanooga. The watch is the proof of his heart's desires. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He is proof of God's heart for you. He is proof that God yearns jealously for you to pursue him singularly, to be totally devoted to him. And the great thing about it is that the Spirit is the one who sanctifies you to do that. He is the one who leads you in repentance. He is the one who forms you into the image of Jesus. God promises to work through the Holy Spirit to bring us back to him. And he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So not only is he a jealous God who demands to be honored appropriately, he actually gives us the grace to do just that. If you'll look with me again at verse 6, we'll see what he says. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God calls him back to himself, calls us back to himself. He wants us to singularly pursue him. So he gives more grace to us to release our selfish visions of the good life. What he requires of us, he gives to us. It's not like this 
Ikea package where you open and you have no idea what you're going to encounter when you get in there. Like you have no idea whether the screws are actually going to line up with the product that you bought or if there's going to be pieces missing or if you have some random piece included in the box that you didn't ask for in the first place. That's not what's happening here. God actually gives you what he requires. He requires for you to be singularly devoted to him. So he gives you the spirit that you might be singularly devoted to him. He gives more grace. He cares enough about us to give us grace when we need it the most, to meet us in in our time of need. James, he calls us through this passage to remember this God that we serve, that God simultaneously is the creator of the universe who by the power of his voice creates and by his strength upholds it all. Yet he cares intimately enough about you to know the number of the hairs that are on your head or that used to be on your head. (laughs) Love you, Tim. (laughs) He is the only one, God is the only one who could have accomplished your salvation. God is the one who makes the sun to rise, but he's also the one who wills and wants your sanctification. He cares so deeply about you that he is so intimately acquainted with your unique circumstance and he desires your growth and Christian maturity. He desires your sanctification. He is the one who knows everything and he establishes his purpose, but he is the one who loves you enough to give you enough grace, who give you more grace in your unique time of need. He wants more than just the label, Christian. He wants your loyalty. And see, this should should encourage us that when our hearts fail, when we chase our visions of the good life, when we're too enticed by the world, God is greater. He won't leave us in our sin. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So if you take inventory of your life and you realize that you've spent time trying to love God and love the world, that you're both trying to pursue your vision of the good life and trying to love God at the same time, Look up, humble yourself before him, recognize these passions that are are warring inside of you, that have crowded out your love for him. Come to him, come before the Lord, humble yourself because he has promised to meet you in that space. So when our gazes are turned up to view God rightly, the answer is easy. The good life is with God. Living faith submits humbly to him. We won't want anything else. We'll want him only. It makes our relationship with him going from being only about the label to being all about our loyalty. It makes what James details in verses 7 through 10 go from being our burden to being our delight. So verses 7 through 10 gives the recipe for how a living faith submits to God. James, in light of him pulling up our gazes to view God rightly, to be reminded of the grandness and the beauty and the goodness and the loving kindness of our God, everything else fades away. All of our other loves are secondary. Nothing else can compare with the goodness of God. And in light of that goodness are these commands that come in verses 7 through 10. A pastor I respect helpfully summarized these four verses with four words. I'll start with F. Fight, fellowship, focus, and forgiveness. Fight, fellowship, focus, and forgiveness. So if you look with me at verse 7, we'll see fight. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
So submission in the Bible is actually an active military term. It means to arrange under one's authority out of love and respect. Picture troops rallying around a leader. That's what our passage is getting at here. We're we're to be active in arranging ourselves under our leader, Jesus, out of our love and respect for him. Now, to be sure, our culture does not like the word submission. It doesn't like the idea of submission. It's taken on some cultural definitions that were never intended in the Bible. There are images of passivity that are conjured up as we think about the word submission, but that's not what the Bible means. The Bible shows us that it it is an active, noble, righteous thing for you to submit to God. And we also are to be active in resisting the devil. Think about the fights that you have when you're tempted, this internal battle that goes on when you're tempted. Some of you come to group on a weekly basis and you recount the fights with temptation and maybe the same temptation week in and week out. Those fights are good things. They are proof that the Spirit is working in you. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Our passage is proof that the fight is not the problem. The problem would be the lack of fight. If we, try, if we yielded time and time and time again and put up no fight to sin, that would be the problem. If that's you and you find yourself constantly yielding to sin, please come talk to one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that and wade into that with you. But if you're fighting your sin, keep fighting. It is proof that you have a spiritual heartbeat. He calls us to fight and he gives us the grace to do it. Next, look at the beginning beginning of verse 8, fellowship. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you regularly spend time with God? Do you pray? Do you read the Bible? It is a wonderful act of divine grace that this God that we've been talking about actually reveals himself to us in Scripture. Isn't it humbling to think that God wants to intimately know you? He invites you to come to him. He invites you to pray. Prayer is probably one of the most intimate things that you could do with him because it requires you to humble yourself before him and recognize your need and also recognize who he is in light of that. The best news of all is that he promises to meet you there. He calls us to draw near to him because he has shown us grace because he is first drawn near to us in Jesus. Third, look at the end of verse eight, focus. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So focus on God. Don't be double-minded. Don't let your self-serving passions get in the way of your love for God. If they do, repent. Ask God for grace in the face of the struggle. That's a prayer that he loves to answer, by the way. If you were to ask him for grace in your time of struggle, that's a prayer he loves to answer. My grandparents have this row of crepe myrtles in their front yard, and they're really beautiful. They're awesome when they bloom. But there's this process of pruning that happens before the blooming. The excess has to be cut away to make room for the blossoms that come every June. This is the same thing that God is calling to us here. What do you need to prune in your life for there to be growth in your relationship with the Lord? Where are you double-minded, trying to love both your selfish passions and God? Trying to love the world 
in the things of God. Notice, too, that the command first is to draw near, then to prune. It's not the other way around. God wants you to come to him because he actually gives you the grace needed for you to focus and for you to prune. Lastly, look with me at verse 9, forgiveness. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So God is calling us to take our sin seriously. Have you ever confronted somebody about something that they've done or how they've hurt you and they've laughed at you? It's a terrible feeling. And that's what God's getting at right here. That's what he's referring to. He's saying that the proper response for your sin is your remorse. You should mourn. You should feel conviction. You should want to change. A godly person is sorrowful for their sin. A godly person recognizes that it is only by the grace of God that forgiveness can be found. So these three verses, they bring us to the end of ourselves. That's what repentance looks like, right? Recognizing that I have nothing before the Lord, but he has everything. And it is precisely in the depths of that repentance, the depths of coming to the end of yourself, where he has promised to meet us. Look with, us, look with me again at verse 10. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A lifetime of humble submission to the Lord will end in eternal exaltation with him. A lifetime of humble submission to the Lord will end with eternal exaltation with him. In reality, our passions that crowd out our love for God are too small. They don't make promises like this. It's like saying no to a four-course meal at Supperland and instead saying yes to a Twinkie from Dollar General. Our passions promise pleasure or fulfillment in the moment, but only God can both promise and accomplish your exaltation. And here's what's better. This is both a future promise and a here and now promise. He actually promises to meet us in the here and now and to give us more grace in our struggle and to lift us up over sin. And all of that, James is making the case that a life of living faith that humbly submits to God is actually the good life. Pastor John Piper is quoted as saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Let that sink in for a second. The good life that we are searching for is actually found when we resolve that our main goal in life is to live for God by enjoying him forever. I hope you catch that word, enjoy. Our pursuit of our passions or our desires or our pleasures is really our pursuit of joy. Those feelings that you're chasing, the pleasures that you crave, the desires that you have, they don't hold a finger to Jesus. God's intention in you is to be most glorified in you. Your goal is to be happy. Those two things meet when you humbly submit to God. 
God's intention to be most glorified in you and your goal to be happy meet when you submit to God. And you humble yourself before him and humbly submit to God. This actually comes to fulfillment. The Bible says that God satisfies the desires of every living thing. The Bible also says, at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. You hear that? He satisfies the desires of every living thing, and at his right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. Our passage points to the fact that the grace of God is better than anything else that we could find in this world. The grace of God satisfies your deepest desires. He has given you enough grace, and he wants to give you more grace to live in this fallen world because he has given you himself. He has not abandoned you in this life, but he actually promises that there will be grace to endure. Think about some of these situations. Are you asking yourself why your life isn't working? Each new idea, each new vision that you have seems to crash and burn. Do you feel like you're grasping at straws for what's next? Humbly submit to him. He gives more grace. Are you constantly bummed out by your season of life? You, you think you'd, you should be further along by now? Are you frustrated that you haven't done more or accomplished more? Humbly submit to him. He gives more grace. Are you tired of the two-faced life? You show up on Sunday and a group and you're one way, and the other six days of the week you're totally different? Are you not just worn out by that? Is that not tiring? That's you humbly submit to him because he gives more grace. Do you feel hopeless in your fight with sin? Does that same sin seem to have this stronghold in your life and you can't seem to shake loose? That's you humbly submit to him. He gives more grace. He's promised to meet you in your time of need with more grace. He doesn't just give us grace for our sin. He actually gives us grace for our suffering and our frustration that is brought on by our sin. When we sin, and we're frustrated, and we struggle because of our sin, he gives us great to, grace to meet us in that too. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he wants to show us that the good life is really found in humble submission to him. So humbly submit to him, and he will exalt you. Pray with me. God, we do acknowledge we have sinned before you. We are too often persuaded by the things of the world, by our fleshly desires, by the desire to love ourselves. We haven't loved you the way that we should. God, we praise you that you did send the Spirit to live in your sons and daughters, and it is he who wins our hearts back to you. It is he who grows us in grace. It is he who reminds us of the good news of the gospel. It is he who reminds us to view you rightly. God, I pray that we would repent of the ways that we have chosen the world over you. We have settled with less. We have settled with lesser loves over, over, the, over our love for you. God, I pray that you would Make yourself known in our hearts. That you would remind us of who you are. We need you. We pray that we would be drawn to you in humble submission. Because life with you is better.
God, we love you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.